This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Welcome again to New Books in Military History. Each week, we select a new book on a topic of military history, and we interview the author. This week, our guest is Michael Matheny, instructor at the U.S. Army War College and author of the book, Carrying the War to the Enemy, American Operational Art to 1945. Ask many military historians about the origins of American operational art, and many will place it sometime after the Second World War. Conventional wisdom is long held that the American military only developed a rough understanding of operations, that is, the planning and conduct of large-scale, core size or greater, coordinated offensive and defensive actions in the twin crucibles of the European theater and the U.S. Navy's drive across the Central Pacific. Now, these traditionalist accounts have generally put the United States Army in the role of either reluctant students being schooled in the nuances of modern warfare by the masters of the art, the German Wehrmacht, or, in the case of the Pacific, being pulled along unwillingly by the more sophisticated Navy and Marine Corps. Well, if this is what passes for conventional wisdom, then Michael Matheny is having none of it. In his enlightened study of the U.S. Army's experiences and its educational efforts between 1917 to 1945, Matheny introduces a new perspective in the story of American operational art. Even as the United States Army was struggling to learn how to wage mass modern industrial war in the forested hills of France, in the First World War, insightful officers were considering how best to achieve the maximum offensive result by applying the greatest concentration of force at minimal cost. The new problems that covered during the First World War became the subject of intensive study during the interwar years in the Army's professional schools, which, Matheny argues quite persuasively, ultimately gave American military officers a qualitative edge over its foreign allies and enemies in the Second World War. Now, while admittedly a take on the American way of war that is rather exceptionalist and triumphalist, Matheny backs up his claims with four solid case studies. Operations Torch and Overlord in the European Mediterranean Theater and Operations King Two the 1944 invasion of the Philippines, and Operation Iceberg, the 1945 invasion of Okinawa. In the end, carrying the war to the enemy presents an interesting foundation through which to begin reconsidering the course of American arms in the Second World War, making a strong effort to recast a flawed conventional narrative. 
Hello, Mike. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Today we're talking with Michael Matheny about his latest book, Carrying the War to the Enemy, American Operational Art to 1945. I finished his book, and I recommend it highly to any of our listeners interested in American military history of the 20th century. Mike, can you say a few words about yourself and what prompted you to pursue the project? Well, um, I'm a uh, 30-year veteran of the United States Army, retired in 2003, uh, pursued my Ph.D. at uh, Temple University, uh, subsequently served and continue to serve on the faculty of the Army War College, where I teach strategy and military history. Okay. And what prompted you to pursue the project? I've had a uh, lifelong professional fascination with operational art. And I think it's one of the few rocks that remain to be turned over by professional military historians. Uh, very little has been written about it, and uh, I think for a number of reasons, primarily because few understand it. Um, and so uh, it has professionally gotten my attention for a number of years now. Well, what exactly is the operational art? Can you give us a definition? Is it a modern convention or something older? Uh, I think it's older. Uh, to begin with, uh, <clears throat> there are, conventionally we say that there are three levels of war, uh, the strategic level, the tactical level, and now we uh, focus on the operational level. And uh, basically, in the beginning, you had strategy and tactics. And when tactics could deliver strategic results, which rendered political uh, objectives, that was enough. Uh, however, by the 19th and certainly by the early 20th century, the scale of war became so vast and armies became so large, uh, they were incapable of rendering political results. If I, just a short example, uh, for example, at Waterloo uh, in 1815, you have about 185,000 men engaged in battle, and in a single afternoon, they sort of decide the fate of Europe for almost 100 years. That's pretty decisive. By 1914, when we get to World War One. You have over uh, three million men arrayed on the frontiers uh, of uh, France and Germany. And there are so many of them, tactics cannot chew its way to strategic result. And so ultimately, when they are thinking about what needs to be done to make sure we don't have to go through World War I again and all that butchery, uh, they decide that uh, we're going to have to conduct a series of battles uh, in a theater of war in order to achieve uh, strategic results. And that is really the birth of modern operational art. Who would you credit with inventing, for lack of a better term, operational art? Well, if we're talking about theorists, the, uh, those historians who have chosen to write about operational art, uh, and the term is pretty much developed by uh, uh, Litvak, uh, Edward Litvak, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, I think uh, the conventions are that you're looking at Russian theorists uh, like Svechin, uh, Tukhachevsky and others. Uh, on the German side, if we're looking at pre-modern operational art, uh, many historians point to Moltke, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the elder. And uh, this is part of the things which fascinated me, uh, because those who write about operational art say it's about the Russians and the Germans are the greatest practitioners and theorists of operational art. And it struck me that, uh, well, there are a lot of people involved in World War I, and, for example, we sent over two million men to Europe. And uh, certainly the vast scale and scope of World War II demanded uh, that American officers also study the results of World War I, reach their own conclusions, 
on how to wage modern war. Right. So my contention is, and one of the primary uh, uh, thesis of the book is, that Americans also develop operational art during the interwar period, and in contradistinction to the uh, Soviets and the Germans that normally get the lion's share of credit for this, we actually develop our own operational art based on our geostrategic imperatives, theory and experience. And I claim that by 1945, it's actually much superior. Well, I, I do want to spend more time talking about the First World War, but I'm also interested in the points that you, you make linking the operational art of the 19th century to figures like Moltke the Elder, which then brings in mind the idea of operational art as an aspect of the rising professionalism taking place in the officer corps in the 19th century. Is it fair to link you know, this, this drive towards professionalism to the birth of the operational art? No, I think there's, uh, there's much to be said here. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the professional operation, study of operational art is much easier than the study of strategy. Uh, normally, grand strategies, we might uh, refer to it as sort of the province of the monarchs, the kings, the policymakers. And so what we see is a sort of narrowing of the professional interest into that level between uh, tactics and strategy, where they clearly have uh, both the requirement professional requirement and the purview to uh, conduct their business. Also, it simply becomes necessary. Uh, one of the things which I think directly contribute to the development of operational art is just the size of armies. Armies get much bigger, as I uh, mentioned earlier. And so we have a distributed force on the battlefield. And that distributed force, uh, for example, the Corps d'Armée system of, of Napoleon, uh, has got to be synchronized and move purposely to achieve their objectives. And so that study also lends itself to uh, the development of a professional staff of officers capable of sustaining and coordinating large armies, which is part and parcel of the story of operational art. Well, let's apply this directly to the United States Army then. You acknowledge the importance of World War I and the interwar years experiences of the officer corps. Um, but stepping back earlier, can we identify or link operations to the reformist impulses of figures like John Schofield or Elihu Root? Or do we have to wait until later for deep observation and participation in foreign war for the operational art to take uh, over? I think uh, we certainly have to look at Elihu Root and others uh, to develop in terms of developing their contribution, in my view, is the establishment of a school system, a military professional educational system, which will then become the venue through which later officers will study the requirements and develop the, uh, uh, the American approach to operational art. I think specifically we have to go to the interwar period to look at the development of modern operational art. Right. And what I mean by modern is that uh, we're talking about land power, sea power, and air power, which of course is pretty much uh, born uh, in World War One. The officers who fought that war, uh, Pershing, his staff, Hugh Drum, all those those folks, they were they were literally very embarrassed. I think at our lack of preparation in World War One. Uh, to give you an idea, President Wilson forbids any uh, military planning prior to our entry because he thinks it's provocative. And the last class at the Army War College uh, before we enter the war, we are, the officers are practicing in a map exercise. Uh, a war with, uh, uh, against England in which we're going to use seven divisions, okay? And this is the same time, of course, that uh, the British, uh, the French, and the Germans are struggling in the Battle of the Somme. 
in which, uh, you know, a million men are involved in that titanic struggle. So we're not prepared at any level to uh, actually get into modern warfare, and it's a very bloody business learning that. And so after the war, uh, Pershing particularly vows never again. And since we're very strapped, we don't have a lot of money, there's not much interest, very soon re budgetary retrenchment is, is, uh, is a um, uh, obvious necessity, the only place they can really invest is in the professional military education system, the senior school systems. And that is where I think uh, we really find the birth of American, modern American operational art. As we look at the First World War, you, know, you state in the book that the American Expeditionary Force struggled to become a modern tactical and operational force. Um, and, of course, you, you've just validated that in our comments. But I want to ask you, which operation was probably most essential to this process? Well, uh, clearly, I think the one which uh, will be most studied uh, and contribute to the understanding, the experiences that we're going to base much of our study of World War I on during the interwar period, has got to be the Meuse-Argonne. Uh, Meuse-Argonne is a, is, a, is a bloody fight. It lasts for uh, 47 days. Uh, we experience over 100,000 casualties. Uh, and this is the first time we actually see the American Army fully engaged, an American Army. Prior to uh, Samuel, uh, which briefly precedes Meuse-Argonne, of course, uh, we have the largest tactical formation which the, uh, uh, which the Army employs is the Corps. And they are, for, they are farmed out to the Brits. They are farmed out to the French. But only at Samuel, uh, which is a fairly uh, uh, less significant uh, major operation, the news Argonne, by contrast, we have uh, the largest U.S. Army in history will go over the top, uh, and it will be a searing and bloody experience for all those that are involved. Mm -hmm. You mentioned these earlier core engagements. Is it because of the lack of, of forces at that point? Is it because of the American inability to think beyond a tactical model at this point? Well, there are a number of problems. Uh, I think what drives this particularly is that when you have an army, of course, we're not just talking about combat units. We're talking about army, army service troops, uh, additional uh, artillery, logistics, uh, army aviation. And the allies, particularly the British and the French, which are very bloody, what they want are infantrymen. In fact, the, uh, initially, of course, they want to take Americans and put them directly into their units. The amalgamation controversy. Right? Exactly. We're not going to do that. So to actually build up some sort of a competent operational force, like uh, the American First Army and later the American Second Army, we need Army troops, and we simply do not have them. So most of the, uh, the Army troops that we will use uh, will largely be uh, French, uh, we'll borrow French aviation, we'll borrow French artillery, and it takes a great deal of time to build the logistics sustainment infrastructure required to support uh, a large American force such as the First Army. How does the Army fare in the 1920s as it strives to balance assimilating new lessons with demobilization? Well, I think that uh, we, we start the Army school system uh, opens its doors again uh, in terms of land power. Uh, that's the uh, Command and General Staff School and the Army War College. Uh, most of these, uh, virtually all of these officers are veterans, and they're uh, trying to uh, incorporate their experience of World War One with the current requirements that they're facing. And as a result, I think we do very well. Uh, I think, uh, the, see, part of the problem is when you talk about the traditional view of the American military in the interwar period, 
you have books like Johnson's uh, uh, Fast Tanks and Heavy Bombers. Right. Uh, it really looks bad. It looks like we are unprepared for what's coming in World War II largely because of the financial retrenchment and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think that has a tendency to focus too much on the technology and the doctrine. The real progress which is going to be made in, in thinking about modern warfare is going to be made not in the doctrine necessarily, and certainly not in the technology with which we ill-equip ourselves. It's going to be in the actual classrooms and the student texts and what is taught there and discussed there. And I think that's evident in my research of uh, the curriculum in all our professional schools at that time. Well, let's talk about the Commander General Staff College then. You know, uh, how exactly is it taking its or undertaking a role to shape the operational arts? Is it through instruction or through independent student initiative or combination? It's probably a combination. I would tell you that uh, the Commander General Staff School has a uh, reputation of being a uh, school solution, very hard, very rigorous, and surely it is. It is designed to teach uh, staff officers from uh, – uh, division, corps, and even army level. Uh, they go through a several years of, uh, in which they'll actually add an additional year to the uh, general staff school, sort of a two-year program, uh, in order to sharpen those skills for uh, staff officers at the army level. Uh, so it has that reputation. But what it does, it does a couple of very useful things. The first is we uh, continue to develop what's called the five-paragraph field order, which is an approach to military decision-making. And uh, that inculcates generations of officers mm -hmm. how to approach problem solving. I think that's fine. The other thing is that the actual faculty of that school in the 20s writes a uh, huge document, which is going to be the supposed to be the operational doctrine uh, of the United States Army. When it gets to the Department of the Army, they say, that's, that's too much. We don't want that. We need to cut it down and just give them sort of a handbook of what they need. But when you read that original document that they wrote, uh, that really has a lot of these operational concepts uh, that will form the basis of modern operational art. Mm -hmm. Also, one of the things which surprised me and is part of a small controversy in uh, American military history is the influence of theory. Uh, Christopher Bassford famously wrote a book, uh, The Reception of Clausewitz in America, in which he claims that it had very little effect. Uh, my research revealed uh, something different. Uh, Oliver Robinson, a lieutenant colonel at the Command and General Staff School, actually teaches 10 lessons in strategy using uh, Clausewitz. And uh, when I actually went to the curriculum, it was, it was fascinating because many of the concepts which we currently use in our doctrine today, for example, center of gravity, culmination, were actually taught by Robinson uh, in the Command and General Staff School. In one case, I saw uh, in, uh, where Eisenhower, four of our future Corps commanders, and uh, several of our future Army commanders in World War II we're all in the same classroom at the same time when Oliver Robinson was holding forth uh, on this theoretical basis for operational art. So I think there's probably more to it than uh, many historians have uh, have claimed to date. Well, I would think so, yeah, I mean, particularly after the experiences of facing off against the Germans in, in the prior war. Um, and, of course, this is a period as well when it's still going to be student exchanges between the Kriegs Academies and, and, and the Army War Colleges, I believe. Well, there are very few, actually. Uh, there are very few. We did have, uh, generally these took the uh, role of visits. The most famous exchange student we had with the Kriegs Academy, of course, was Albert C. Wiedemeyer. And instead of going to the Army War College, he graduates from the Command General Staff School and goes to the Kriegs Academy. I looked at the Kriegs Academy, and you have to remember that uh, 
the uh, after because of the Versailles Treaty, the Germans were not allowed to have a German general staff. Right. The War College really didn't exist as such. It was a collection of divisional schools. And so uh, when I compared them, uh, I, I don't I don't think the Germans came off as well as uh, we've claimed. Interesting, uh, interestingly, Jörg Moot has uh, come out with a book uh, talking about command culture, comparing the uh, the German and American uh, command culture, and he takes a very critical view, a conventional critical view, I would argue, of the American school system, and, and I think he misreads it. Well, I'll be asking Georg about that in a couple of weeks when I interview <laughs> so, <laughs> We might actually have a dialogue coming up. Um, well, let's talk about the Army War College curriculum. How does that fit into the process? It's a different school. That, uh, most of the progress which is made in American uh, operational uh, theory and thinking takes place at the Army War College. Uh, and it's driven largely, again, by our experience in World War I, uh, our understanding of theory, and more importantly, our geostrategic imperatives. What I mean by that is when they look, for example, uh, at the tactical phasing which was required in World War I, and that's evident when you look at a battle like Meuse-Argonne, I think they extrapolated the tactical phasing into operational phasing. One of the things which struck me uh, is that uh, the specificity that was required by War Plan Orange, War Plan Orange, the plan for the uh, potential war against Japan, was actually the most frequently exercised war plan at the Army War College. Mm. Now, that plan is normally associated, of course, with the Naval War College, in which it certainly was exercised there as well. But our occupation of the Philippines sort of demanded attention. Uh, and this notion, how does the Army play in a war against Japan? And because of the great uh, distances involved, uh, they automatically decided that they were going to have to phase these operations. It was going to require a single theater commander and joint staffs and, of course, the obvious uh, emphasis on, on logistics necessary to project and sustain those sorts of forces on a, on a global scale. Well, with reference to the Philippines, though, in the Pacific at this time, in the 1920s, is it more of a defensive operational art they're looking at or operational approach? Or are they projecting the need for uh, offense and perhaps even reconquest of the lost islands? Yeah, exactly. In, in the 1920s and, and in the 30s as well, War Plan Orange sort of assumed that we were going to lose the Philippines, uh, that the garrison was supposed to, was supposed to withdraw uh, to uh, Corregidor, to the southern part of the islands, and they were supposed to hold out for six months, at which time the United States Navy would triumphantly sail across the Pacific, have this classic Mahanian sea battle, and, and save them. But in any event, it meant that uh, there was going to have to be a reconquest of the Philippines. And even once we had conquered the Philippines, the question then was, how do we bring the war to an end? How do we get Japan to, to negotiate uh, or surrender? And that generally involved, from the Navy's point of view, uh, a sea blockade, Remember, the Army Air Force is actually part of the Army now, and so an air blockade is also being considered. So you're going to have to take large forces, project them from the West Coast or Hawaii to the Philippines, sustain them, get them ashore, and fight them. And that requires an uh, operational art of high order that the Germans, it's a geostrategic problem the Germans never have to face right. because uh, they're going to invade their neighbors. And their entire operational culture is one of short, decisive campaigns because they cannot afford economically a long war. Very different approach to operational art. Mm. Is the Army contemplating war in Europe at this point, a second war in Europe at this point, or are they really focused on domestic security, securing the borders, and um, 
the Philippines? Unlike uh, the General Staff College, the Army War College uses actual scenarios, and these revolve around the color plans. So, for example, uh, uh, Plan Black is the plan against Germany. Uh, Plan Pink is a a plan against the Soviet Union. Uh, Crimson is Canada and so forth. And then, of course, we have Orange. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is interesting is we do do, uh, exercise these other war scenarios. And by the end of the 20s, we're actually uh, doing combinations. And that's kind of important. For example, in one scenario, we're at war with Britain and Japan. And the reason that's sort of important is because we are going to find ourselves in a global war in which we're going to have to balance resources and forces on both sides of, uh, of the, uh, the transatlantic oceans which separate us from our enemies. So the most, productive, the most productive scenario is obviously going to be the one with Japan uh, because that one will mandate the joint staffing and the logistics things which uh, are not quite necessarily the case if you're invading Canada or Mexico. Mm. How do the 30s, the events of the 30s, affect the system and the doctrine taking shape? I think it becomes uh, much more focused. Obviously, by 1936, events are picking up speed in both Europe, uh, China, and uh, uh, Japan. There's already warfare in the Pacific. So it has a, uh, like most things, <laughs> conflict will have a way of focusing your mind. And so uh, it becomes much more intense. And we're leaving behind a lot of the sort of tactical lessons that they focused on from World War I. We're now looking, for example, uh, at the role of air power. Uh, the developments of uh, air power at the Air Corps Tactical School at Maxwell Air Force Base, uh, we're now actively looking at how we're going to leverage all uh, the military power we have, sea power, air power, and land power to achieve our objectives. And that obviously has uh, uh, really focuses on, on the Pacific. Right. Well, how does German rearmament feature in, or Japanese expansion in China and the Pacific? Aren't these factors as well to have to be confronted? Yeah, there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, remember, the, once the Depression hits and FDR becomes president, You'll find that uh, by 1934, for example, we are actually in the process of uh, sort of rearming ourselves. You have the Vincent Naval Act, uh, which is going to get the – it takes a long time to build a Navy. And so the air, air power, uh, the air, Army Air Corps, later to be the Army Air Force, and, of course, the Navy will benefit uh, very early from a desire on the part of the federal government to put more money uh, in the, uh, into rearmament in order to put more people back to work. Uh, this is in addition to the obvious threats which are uh, sort of flaring up around the war. But remember, for the Army, uh, a little bit different case. The Army's tradition is that we're going to mobilize the nation uh, when we face a threat. And this has worked pretty well. We have a small cadre of professional soldiers who can lead this mass conscript army. But you don't get a mass conscript army until there's an evident need for one. Uh, so what you see is that the chiefs, particularly MacArthur, well, he's chief of staff, He's not so much interested in modernization in terms of technology, because that technology is going to change every couple of years. What he's interested in is force structure. That is keeping as many and expanding as much uh, the size of the Army as he can, hanging on to that force structure. It becomes a lot easier by 1938, obviously. Uh, but the first beneficiaries of rearmament in the United States are going to be the uh, Army Air Corps and the Navy. Right. Is there any jealousy in the part of the Army towards this? I mean, certainly MacArthur is, is thinking of force structure, as are others, including Marshall. But I can't help but think that there are going to be junior officers who will rise in, in the hierarchy, who who may well have uh, an issue with this at the time. 
Well, clearly. In fact, uh, again, you'll uh, recall that I was talking about how embarrassed uh, many of the professional officers were at our lack of preparedness uh, in World War One. We create the, uh, uh, the Industrial College of the Army, uh, now ICAF, the Industrial College of the Armed Forces. And its mission in the 20s was to prepare the nation for mobilization. How are we going to tap our industry? How are we going to build this massive army that we know will be necessary? Uh, Eisenhower goes to it, as do many of the other uh, officers. And so uh, that's one visible way, again, where the professional military education will contribute. Now, you know, you think about it, it takes us almost a year to put forces uh, in, in Europe so that they're actually contributing in the First World War. But within six months of World War II, I mean, we're, we're fighting in Guadalcanal, we're, uh, we're, we're moving troops everywhere, we're much better prepared and we're much uh, quicker, we're more quickly engaged uh, due to the, all that effort that went on in the interwar period. First real test of this operational system occurs at, at Operation Torch. How does it fare? Well, it depends on who you read. Rick Atkinson <laughs> will tell you that uh, not very well. Clearly, it's going to be a learning experience. Uh, I do four case studies in the book. The first one is, of course, uh, how do we do out of, uh, right off the gun and, and torch? And I have to tell you that uh, when I look at it, it's a learning experience. There's no doubt about it. But there's some things which are pretty important. Uh, one is, in torch particularly, we're going to see the evolution of the first combined joint staff in history. What I mean by that is when Eisenhower is appointed as the Supreme Allied Commander uh, for the North African operation, uh, I mean, he has a joint staff, which is going to be integrated, okay, it will consist of Brits and Americans, and that's the first one of its kind. And you're going to see Eisenhower grow very quickly uh, as a joint, uh, a joint leader and a strategic leader as well. So do we do, I, I would give it about a C, C plus, but it does reflect when you look at the orders, uh, it very much reflects the operational approach developed in the interwar years. For example, uh, as you know, in Torch, we land in three places, and one of them we insist is, is Casablanca, which is outside uh, the Mediterranean. And one of the reasons that, that we wanted to do that was to ensure the sea lines of communication. Once you're in the Mediterranean, of course, the, those are contested waters and air. So it's our emphasis, again, on logistics uh, which I think is very evident and I think very necessary. Well, yeah, of course, you mentioned you have four case studies, two for the ETL, two for the Pacific Theater. And I, I do have to ask why you chose to bypass Husky in the Italian campaign and dive straight into Overlord. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's done well, and I understand the reasons for it, I believe. But um, still, it's an oversight. I mean, can you address that? Yeah, uh, part of it's, uh, my thinking was this. I, I did want to see exactly how well we do right off the bat in Torch. Okay, so that was kind of a, that's going to be a benchmark for us. Right. But the most important major operation in World War II is clearly Overlord. Okay, so I wanted to spend the time looking at uh, how we really approach, and they understood it. They knew very well. Eisenhower said, this is it. If we fail at Overlord, you know, it, 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 it may loses the war. This is, this is the most important major operation of World War II. And so that seemed to me to warrant uh, a, a deeper look. Uh, so I wanted two in the ETO, two in the PTO, and those were the most important uh, ones in my view. Okay, okay. Well, I read your observation summing up Normandy, where you say, you know, quote, if I quote for you, the Allies do not have to be perfect, however only better than the Germans. 
uh, with really a knowing smile on my face, having worked under Russell Wigley, just as you have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and no doubt the Americans and British had mastered the operational art to a level far surpassing that of the Germans by this point. But saying that, you know, I, I can't help but think, too, that you know, it's a large part of the Western Allied success was as much due to Hitler's own interference and poor leadership. What kind of role does his failure to grasp the principles of operational art factor into this American success? Well, I think this is uh, one of the uh, one of the more interesting controversies in history. As you know, the, uh, the German generals uh, after World War II, when they, they were interviewed, of course, blamed every failure on Hitler. It was his <laughs> interference. What well, no, It was him. Uh, I actually uh, tend to think, uh, but not so fast. Uh, I think the Germans have always been held up since World War II as sort of the uh, uh, the archetype of the professional operational artist. These guys are extremely good, and they were simply overwhelmed by brute Allied force. Uh, but I think if you look at it closely, I think they screw it up. Uh, first of all, uh, in the areas in which I'm interested, uh, command and control, intelligence, logistics, I think uh, they don't do well. And Operational art is not just about a big hand on a map, about some fancy maneuver which unhinges the enemy. It's about sustaining, projecting, and employing large-scale forces in a theater of war. And I don't think the Germans do that very well. They are so focused on operations uh, that uh, their intelligence and their logistics uh, are no match. They're just always subsidiary to the operational concerns. Now, Wagner makes the point, and uh, Eisenhower's lieutenants, that we are so concerned with logistics, we miss some operational maneuver, like closing uh, the uh, the gap there right. in the breakout. Uh, I think that uh, you know you have to look at it in terms of remember we're not on we just got on the continent, okay, and we have to stay. We have a lodgement, and we have to move out. The the what I'm saying is that the problem for us is is of a magnitude greater than that for the Germans, and because they do not. Uh, uh, have the same sort of emphasis in their staff structures on logistics and intelligence and so forth. Their operational art suffers. Clearly, they don't have the sort of joint uh, combined uh, staff structure that we do. And uh, I think it really is an indicator of their uh, less professional operational art. And I don't think we get credit for that. Well, is that, is, is that a failing then of the what you described earlier with the lack of a German school system in the 20s and, you know, Granted, through the 30s, there is a school system, but it's also as much being undermined as um, supported by National Socialist doctrine. Um, does, is there a sense that the German general staff of the 40s just never had these lessons to study in the 20s? I think it's probably more a case of uh, German operational uh culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean here is, again, as I alluded to, one of the things which drives the way we, the way the Americans approached war were the geostrategic imperatives. And I think that, as I alluded to earlier, the Germans uh, also suffer, uh, not suffer, but are certainly influenced by their geostrategic imperatives. So they don't have to project power the way we do. Mm -hmm. uh, their imperative is that they fight decisive battles of annihilation and, and, and quickly. Uh, and so every time they get involved in one of these long wars, which eventually become a struggle of attrition, they suffer. Right. So their operational art is not suited. One of the things which is key about operational art is that it must be nested in the strategy in order to be effective. 
and the Germans in World War II are absolutely abysmal at strategy, mm-hmm. and their operational art suffers as well. Well, you could follow the case of Jeff Merrick as well, in which, you know, according to him, you know, the real national social strategy that was being pursued was the war of annihilation against the Jews of Eastern Europe or the Jews of Europe, which itself is just, you know, to, to bring it up, it's a, well, A, it's a bankrupt issue. B, it's, it's a nightmare scenario for, for the German army to, to wage war effectively in. Yeah, my point here is, uh, again, my book is the first book on American operational art, mm-hmm. uh, and it compares it directly to our adversaries in World War II. And, and my point is that the conventional historical view of the Germans are that they're great operational artists, great tactical uh, uh, artists, right. but they're lousy strategists. Right. And so likewise, we're very good at the strategic level, we're not very good at the operational level, and we're very mediocre at the tactical level. And I simply reject that sort of uh, uh, assertion. I think when you get into the eaches, uh, that's just not the case. True. Good, good. Well, let's, let's turn for a bit then to the Pacific Theater. Um, you know, aside from, or including, if you like, you know, the issues of, of Joint Army-Navy Command, what were the greatest challenges that the, uh, were faced in planning operations in the Pacific? Well, clearly, and they, they recognize this in the interwar period, <clears throat> you're talking about operations over 5,000 miles, right. which means you've got to have bases, you've got to have uh, uh, an air power, sea power, and uh, uh, land power have got to work in conjunction. They've got to develop what, what we currently call joint leverage. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're going to march across the Pacific, that means that the uh, Navy is going to have to seize air base, it's going to have to seize islands, the uh, Army will have to secure them and garrison them, and the air power then will be using those uh, bases as platforms to extend their operational reach so that the Navy can secure the next base, the Army can garrison it, and, the air, and then air power can then extend its reach once again. That's why jointness was so important. And usually when we talk about the uh, uh, Pacific theaters, you know you have MacArthur and you have Nimitz, right. and they both have different theaters. And uh, MacArthur hated the Navy, uh, and so we have this uh, sort of uh, uh, great story of, of how there is no jointness in the Pacific. The fact is they got along okay. When MacArthur wanted the uh, wanted a fleet or needed the ships, uh, Nimitz would give it to him. When well, he, he would have, you know, uh, I remember Bill Halsey actually served MacArthur pretty well during the, the Philippines operations. Indeed, indeed. But my, but my research showed me that uh, regardless of what we may think about the relationships between MacArthur and Nimitz, at the next level, okay, the, what I would refer to as the operational rather than the th- theater strategic level, right. there was entirely uh, jointness going on. How did the Japanese fare in the realm of operational planning? We haven't really talked about that yet. <laughs> well, not well. Uh, the, unlike, for example, if you look at the joint staff, the United States Joint Staff, uh, which is fairly highly developed uh, through staff uh, by 1944. Uh, you have under that, you have the Joint Intelligence Committee, you have the uh, Joint uh, Planning Committee, the JPC. These are officers of all branches doing the planning. That doesn't occur in Japan. In Japan, you have the Imperial Japanese Headquarters, which is nothing more than two committees, uh, one by the Imperial uh, Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy. And there is no uh, coordination. In fact, some have claimed that they fought two very different wars. The rivalry uh, between the, the Army and the Navy, which uh, is evident throughout the interwar period, that is not 
eased when they actually get to war. And the the army, for example, was always centered, and the majority of it, in fact, is in China. That is the uh, the army's war. And of course, the navy is uh, is fighting in the uh, the waters of the Pacific. So there is no jointness. Uh, just like there is very little uh, Japanese emphasis on intelligence or logistics. They're fighters. They're warriors, much like the Germans. And uh, clearly, the Japanese uh, armed forces suffer from it. Mm. You present the return of the Philippines in 1944 as an exercise in, again, quoting from your book, the best practices studied in the interwar years. At the same time, though, didn't the operations for the Philippines hold you know, great potential for disaster, particularly with reference to you know, the Battle of Leyte Gulf? <laughs> yes, clearly. Uh, and again, this is a case where uh, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. Uh, I don't think that uh, the Philippines is really all that close run a thing, except for the naval battle. Uh, and the Japanese uh, in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, again, uh, lose because of their inability to execute uh, operations. And they're also handicapped because the plans that they do develop are generally quite complex, uh, requiring a great deal of uh, coordination, synchronization, and therefore a good deal of luck. And they just run out of it at Leyte Gulf. The thing which interests me about the, the Philippines, this is another one of those uh, not much studied or understood operations. Mm -hmm. This is the largest campaign in the Pacific. There are some 15 army divisions that are going to be involved in this. The Japanese on the island uh, number well over uh, 250,000. So, I mean, this is a huge operation. Uh, little studied and little understood in my view. But if you look at MacArthur's planning, and there are a series of campaign plans, it is classic operational art. The, the, plan to, the campaign to retake the uh, Philippines consists of a series of major operations to achieve that strategic objective of recapturing the Philippines and honoring our commitment to defend them. Again, two case studies for the Pacific to make the larger argument. The first, the Philippines. The second being Operation Iceberg, uh, the invasion of Okinawa. And I ask again the same question, you know, why focus on these two alone to the exclusion of other campaigns and operations? Both, re both real and projected operations, I should add. Ah, yes. Downfall would certainly have been uh, an interesting case study, and I thought about it, except that we don't have all you're doing. All, when you deal with downfall, uh, you, which is the plan to actually invade Japan, right. uh, you're, you're still dealing with the planning, but it's all hypothetical. In the other two cases, you can see the results of the planning. Uh, for the Philippines, I thought it was pretty interesting. As I mentioned, it's simply the largest uh, operation, the largest uh, campaign in the Pacific War. So I think that sort of merited attention. Also little known and, and study. But the one that really got my attention, the one that I find personally most uh, fascinating of all these case studies is Iceberg. It's the invasion of Okinawa because that is the last battle of World War II. Mm -hmm. And so... Everything that we've learned about operational art up until that time, I think, is showcased. And what's curious about it is the battle has a uh, very uh, controversial analysis. Right. Uh, many modern uh, historians look at it and say, well, it wasn't very well done at all. That we sort of, uh, Simon Bolivar Buckner, who was in charge of the 10th Army, sort of bungled his way along, you know, uh, and it wasn't well executed. The fact of the matter is... I think if we're looking again at logistics, command and control, uh, intelligence, all that sort of thing, it's done very well. And the point that I want to make about Okinawa is mm -hmm. that, again, it gets back to this notion of those who have written about operational arts seem to suggest that if you're just 
you know, are a great operational art artist through maneuver. You can fracture the enemy's defense and come away with uh, a wonderful, decisive victory without much blood, loss of treasure. Okinawa is very instructive because the Japanese have dug in. Mm -hmm. The enemy has, an, uh, has voted no. They're not going away. So it doesn't really matter how, uh, how Buckner maneuvers the 10th Army. He's going to have to dig these guys out. And so the point I, I would like to make here is that if the enemy... Uh, insists on dying for his country. He must be accommodated. Fanaticism can insist upon attrition, and there's just no other way to go about it. You know, another issue, too, with Iceberg or with Okinawa is the idea of, of joint forces on the American side, the Marine Corps and the Army, both uh, for the first time, really, I think, since Guadalcanal uh, being engaged in the same operation. Is there any friction on the operational level, or do you believe that there was friction on the operational level between the Marines and the Army Command or you not? Know, the only point, uh, and this again is part of the controversy which surrounds uh, the battle when it's over, right. uh, one of the Marine Corps uh, Division Commanders had advocated uh, landing behind the Japanese on the Minnetoga beaches, mm -hmm. and uh, Buckner staff looks at it and they conclude that's not logistically feasible. After the battle, uh, the Marines will claim that, uh, again, this is part of this notion that Buckner's not very imaginative. He's just uh, high diddle diddle straight, straight down the middle, that, that we should have landed a division there and got behind them. Uh, I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong because uh, after the, uh, the, during the, at the end of the operation, we actually do land an infantry division uh, of air, and we cannot sustain it by, uh, uh, from the sea uh, logistically. So uh, Buckner's staff was correct in that point of view. And the other thing is, as I mentioned, it doesn't matter. The island was already isolated. The Japanese were dug in in caves, and you simply had to go dig them out. Right, right. One cave at a time, even. Yep. How would you compare American Operation War to that of its allies in the, in the war? The first the British and then the Soviets. The, uh, the British, uh, very interesting. Uh, I did not spend a lot of time researching <clears throat> British archives or looking at, at beyond how they uh, uh, related to those integrated combined staffs that I mentioned. There are several very interesting comments about the way the British looked at operations, though. The British were opportunist, <coughs> and they would always say, let's do this, and then we'll see how it turns out. <coughs> the Americans were very different. They often said, let's plan this thing all the way out uh, as far as we can. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they had two very different approaches to it. You know, this whole notion of, uh, of staffing, joint staffing and so forth, uh, we were driven to that, uh, not so much by our enemies, but by the Brits. When we were uh, doing the initial planning, uh, Marshall and Albert C. Wiedemeyer, who was one of his chief planners at the time, uh, they go to North Africa for the big conference about, you know, uh, what do we do next? Right. And it turns out that the British staff was much better prepared than our staffs were. Uh, Marshall was embarrassed, and then he decided, no more of that. We're going to have joint staffs, and we're going to come much better prepared. And so from that point on, uh, by uh, late 1942, we get much better at it, particularly in the joint staff in Washington. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about the Soviets, this is another one of those areas of uh, some controversy. Uh, you have uh, the development of deep battle in the 1920s which is, I think, the greatest expression of Soviet operational art and which most people spend a lot of time talking about and so forth. When I look at Soviet operations, they seem pretty traditionally Russian to me. 
Uh, and by that I mean, you know, it's generally a concentration of mass. Uh, they're good for about 300 kilometers by the end of the war in chunks. And then they've got to stop and drag all the logistics up. So uh, not to take anything away from their deception plans, Moskarovka and all the rest of it. I don't find them as innovative or as imaginative as many would like to believe. It would be interesting to look at how we, our view of the Russians have changed. When the Soviet Union was still our greatest competitor, I think we had a real uh, tendency to look at them as being 10 feet tall. And you could trace that all the way back to the 1920s if you wanted to. Uh, in the aftermath, I think uh, we're going to find out and uh, continue to understand that, you know, anyway, certainly good enough, uh, but not uh, not overwhelming. Another issue, too, that, that's interesting that you don't really touch upon is how operational planners deal with the vexing issue of political interference in wartime. I mean, if we're talking about the United States Army in the Second World War, Granted, you have George Marshall shielding you from the FDR, from FDR, but still, it's a highly politicized atmosphere. How does it fare? Well, I, I think it's less uh, unlimited warfare, in which everybody agrees on the nature of the threat, uh, is is much less politicized than is than are the limited wars or the so-called era of persistent conflict in which we find ourselves today. There's a great deal of, part of bipartisan support, obviously, for World War II. Uh, you, but you do see generals. Uh, on the one hand, you have like MacArthur, who constantly is uh, sort of advocating for the return of the Philippines and basing his argument largely on a political rather than military grounds. But then you have Eisenhower, who occasionally gets his hands slapped uh, because he's making <clears throat> policy or political judgments. This happens in North Africa when he's trying to deal with the free French. Mm-hmm. And after that, he'll stick pretty much to the military lane, <laughs> particularly at the end of the war when he advocates not going to Berlin but uh, uh, heading towards the supposed national rebel. The relationships, I think uh, there are several very good books out uh, detailing the relationships between the chiefs and their political masters. And if you look at the relationship between uh, uh, Eisenhower and Churchill, as well as Marshall and uh, Roosevelt, you really have to conclude that we got it pretty much right in terms of their ability to understand the political desires of their masters and to be able to execute it using military force. Of course, in the end, you conclude that American operational mastery is a result of its excellent in-school system, uh, emphasizing professionalism and a rigorous intellectual commitment to operations. Do you believe this same commitment remains in the current environment? Boy, that's a great, uh, that's a $64,000 question. And uh, I was recently talking to some senior officers, and I was trying to make this point. <clears throat> We're obviously uh, going to face a period of, of tremendous financial retrenchment, uh, and I expect it to start very soon. The Army's going to have to make uh, some very tough, tough decisions on where to invest its money. And my point would be that, like in the 1920s and 30s, when we didn't have a lot of money, we really were able to make a good deal of progress by investing in people and investing particularly in the school system. Uh, and I hope that uh, that lesson will be learned and it will be able to protect that because uh, when all else fails, the Army particularly is not about platforms. It's about people, officers, thinking our way through the problems that we face today. So I think it's an excellent question. I, I hope that uh, anybody reading the book would draw the obvious conclusion that uh, the best preparation that we did for World War II uh, was in the school system. Mm. You know, if you're going to encourage other historians or, you know, graduate students or, or um, junior officers in the staff colleges 
to uh, use your model or follow your direction and look at other World War II campaigns. Or if you had a chance to look at another campaign in, in, the, in, this, in a second uh, volume, what would you choose? Or what would you recommend they choose? I would recommend this. Uh, I don't think I nailed American operational up, up to 1945. I think I did it some justice and sort of uh, opened the, the, the case for discussion, if you will. What I'd like to see is let's, uh, let's do post-1945. Uh, let's take it uh, from the Korean War to Vietnam uh, and uh, even further, if you wish. But I'd like to see uh, an American operational art from 1945 to, say, 1986. Uh, there's, uh, as I assert in the book, I think that we lost it. We, we had this. We were the best uh, at it in the world uh, by 1945. But with the advent of the atomic bomb and large-scale warfare seems to be impractical, uh, we sort of lose the bubble. We lose the ability to execute these things, and uh, many have claimed that that's probably what happened in Vietnam. I'd like to see that assertion uh, investigated. So looking at American operational art from 1945 to, say, 1986 or 1990. Well, our traditional last question asks authors about future projects. I have a feeling you may have answered it already, but I'll ask <laughs> again. What's next in store for you as a researcher, as a teacher, and as an author? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, teaching does keep me very busy. Uh, I've got a lot of contact hours uh, at, the, at the War College. But there is, I've got a couple more books I would like to do. The one which actually interests me most, and I already have a title for it, and that would be uh, uh, Grant's Last Campaign, The Battles for Petersburg and the Destruction of the Army of Northern Virginia. That's uh, mm -hmm. part of the war that has not been studied very well. I also do a lot of staff rides. I'm fascinated by the American Civil War. And I really would like to look at that and place it in some sort of strategic and operational context. Uh, it would be kind of a, 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 um, a volume which would follow Mark Grimsley's Moving On, which looks at Grant's Overland campaign. I'd like to do the late 64, 65 to the end of the war. Okay. okay. Well, you'd be in good company in doing that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all we have time for today. Mike, thanks for, for checking in with us. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to our interview with Michael Matheny about his new book, Carrying the War to the Enemy, American Operational Art to 1945. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off for new books in military history. Thank you for listening.